Welcome back, guys and gals. You're listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. This episode is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please surf by yukonminingalliance.ca and check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And here we are. This is pretty much our impromptu roundup kickoff special. And as such, you'll see uh, this episode is fairly heavily themed. Uh, we are going to focus quite uh, quite exclusively on British Columbia and the Yukon this week, uh, just in honor of uh, roundup and the big gathering that's happening downtown today. Uh, I will be heading down there shortly. Uh, we're just uh, in studio polishing off this week's podcast for you. Um, so Leslie will be dropping by with a Geology Corner that's fairly uh, BC and Yukon focused. Uh, she'll take a look at some of the major deposit types and regional trends in both the province and the territory and try to sort of put a narrative together and link them uh, in terms of how some of these deposits may have been formed. So we'll look forward to Leslie dropping in a little bit um, and giving us a real big, uh, nice broad stroke primer on British Columbia and Yukon geology. And we also have this week a timely visit from Chair of the Yukon Mining Alliance, Paul West Sells, who's also the President and CEO of Western Copper and Gold, uh, who people may be aware are advancing the Casino Copper Gold asset through permitting in the Yukon. Uh, so Paul's going to drop in and talk a little bit about the Yukon Mining Alliance um, and what sort of uh, they've come together to do as a marketing coalition that's sort of helped them um, uh, through the, d- the recent downturn um, and, and how that's played a role in bringing majors like Gold Corp and Agnico Eagle into the territory. Uh, Paul will also talk a little bit about the new Yukon Liberal government and his experiences talking with Premier Sandy Silver about uh, sort of a new mineral strategy for the territory and where he thinks that might be going. Uh, so we have some really interesting um, interesting content this week, specifically focused on uh, sort of roundup themes. Um, so before we do get into that, however, we'll just run through a few macro uh, news items just to kick us off. First, let's touch on gold, which remains near a two-month high following the inauguration of President Donald J. Trump in the United States this past weekend. Much ado has been made about Trump's comments that the dollar, U.S. dollar, is quote-unquote too high. Uh, Gold Corp CEO and President David Garofalo mentioned during his Investor Day that he believes this may impose pressure on the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates low to deal with an anemic growth rate in the U.S. Meanwhile, people have also cited Trump's hopes to preserve his manufacturing base and export markets which could result on him putting further pressure on the dollar. Meanwhile, in base metals, all eyes remained on Asia and the impending Chinese New Year, which is scheduled to begin at the end of this week. Scotiabank noted that investors in the West who were short were expecting more Chinese investor and trade selling, but that did not occur. Interesting to note that cancelled warrants for LME lead has skyrocketed, up 94% overnight to 66,000 tons. Lead was sitting at $1.06 per pound this morning, which marks a 16% year-to-date increase, which makes it the best-performing metal thus far in 2017. Furthermore, Copper was sitting at $2.63 per pound at the time of recording, while West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil was sitting at $52.70 per barrel. That pretty much covers our macro for today. We're going to keep it fairly light as we have some very uh, very good and in-depth commentary from both Leslie and Paul West Sells on BC and the Yukon, which we hope will get you uh, nice and started for Roundup, which is kicking off this morning. Uh, so without further ado, let's, uh, let's get uh, Leslie rolling with the Geology Corner, and I will return to you on the flip side to just quickly uh, intro Paul West Sells from the Yukon Mining Alliance. Uh, this week's episode, um, we're going to be covering the many reasons why paying attention to the regional geology 
can seriously increase your chances of discovery. For anybody who has been following my articles on the geology and metal districts of each Canadian province and territory, right? Yep. You may have begun to notice, seriously, some incredible trends and patterns that are emerging. And this, just from this big picture, you know, that I've been slowly painting for everybody step by step. So for those of you who haven't been following along, like, don't worry about it. I'm going to discuss a couple of key points today that I've recently learned about BC and the Yukon that seriously blew my mind. So number one, point number one I'm going to cover is today I'm going to explain why the original geometry of volcanic arcs may be super important to consider in porphyry exploration. Ooh. And I'm going to use some local examples. Number two, I'm going to do a full expose on gold in the Yukon that might just make you want to take a second look on where else you can go hunting for the mother load. Lastly, I'm going to finish by explaining why I think orogenic gold in the Stikine terrain or Stikinia yep. is grossly overlooked. Yeah, mm, yeah. So I'm going to fit this all in with like regional geology context using some local examples, full disclosure, this week's podcast, big subjects, and it's going to be big words, so it's going to take a little while. That's good. Don't cause a staking rush. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> these, these, these thoughts, too, are just stuff that I, I back up with a lot of facts. I talk to a lot of people, and these are some of the patterns that I've noticed, so these thoughts are kind of my own. But Perfect. Okay. I'm excited. Okay, cool. Um, let's just kind of like kick it off by saying, you know, BC and the Yukon made up of a bunch of northwesterly trending belts of rocks that were each sutured onto the North American craton one by one between 150 and about 100 million years ago. So each of those belts, they contain a variety of ore deposits, as we know, and they're typically strung out like pearls on a string. I love that saying. Um, each following like the structural trends and the rocks that host them. That's kind of the synopsis, right? But thanks to UBC and MDRU and groups in the Yukon. So we now have a huge access to a massive amount of knowledge about how these deposits formed, but most importantly, when they formed. Um, and that information is really critical in painting a broad scale picture. But, you know, as explorers, we kind of put up the blinders to anything sitting outside of our property boundaries or district boundaries. We just don't have the luxury of time to figure out that big picture thinking. But not today. Not today. Not Leslie today. Did, Leslie did it for you. I did it for you. And, um, you know, it'll be really helpful, too, if you read the geology article that I wrote. That was up today, right? Um, yeah, it was up to, like, yesterday or something. Perfect. So it's, it's online. In, it's in the paper. So if you're at the Roundup listening to this, go find a paper. It's in there. And it's also online. So if you want to surf by our website, you can check it out as well. Check and it, subscribe. check it, check it, check it. Yeah, subscribe. it's like super cheap. That's my, that's my not so so. Yeah, you'll never, seriously, you'll never get information like this anywhere else. Like, it's crazy. Because I tried to find this information. I had to piece it together myself. Let's look at major porphyry deposits in BC and the Yukon and what their big picture seems to suggest. Now, we know that copper, gold, and all those sorts of porphyry and epithermal deposits in BC and Yukon were formed between 220 million and 175 million years ago. And they were all deposited in these volcanic arcs similar to what you see in Indonesia or Philippines. So today, these deposits are found in two northwesterly trending belts called the Stikinia and Cornell. And they're host to some of the richest deposits like KSM, Red Chris, Bruce Jack, 
And a lot of them are clustered up in the northwest corner of Sakinia in a place known as the Golden Triangle. So everybody knows this, right? Um, but what some people don't know is how that volcanic belt, Stikinia and Cornelia, got there in the first place. It's a total mystery. Today, Stikinia and Cornel are, Cornelia are two separate belts, right? Separated by oceanic rocks. But originally, it used to be one, at least according to the theories. It used to be a boomerang-shaped volcanic arc sitting out in the ocean, when suddenly that northern tip bent backwards in a counterclockwise fashion, right? Mm -hmm. Creating these two belts instead of the one. And this sandwich of terrains then plowed into the margin of North America 150 million years ago. Okay. Okay, so yeah. why is this significant? Well, if you look at the placement of the Golden Triangle, guess where it sits? With the inflection point of the... Totally. Yeah. Totally. You nailed it. Yeah. So what does this mean? It, it, it could mean something really complex. Like, you know, maybe porphyry deposits are preferentially developed in the natural bends and arcs of these volcanic island chains. And if that's the case, then you can take that idea and apply it to all volcanic belts. But not just the recent ones. What about the old ones in the greenstone belts, mm -hmm. right? The Swing and Archean, which we've talked about before. Yep. These belts can wrap around, and maybe the gold is like preferentiated within these little noses and turns. Oh, okay. Because maybe that's where the underlying porphyries or whatever. I don't know. That, that's just total conjecture. But anyway, it's important to consider. So, or the other end is that this whole geological story about Stikinia bending backwards is completely wrong or maybe it's a little bit wrong, um, and that the Golden Triangle is not a district at all, like that cluster of deposits might just be a function of erosional level, right? So maybe the mountains in that part of the BC where you wrote it down to the most perfect level to expose the many porphyries, just enough for people to find. Okay. So that's also important to consider. Now, the other thing I learned about porphyries in BC, I have never learned this before, actually. I'm such an <laughs> idiot. I didn't know. I admit it, whatever. So I'm sure you're not alone. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. The other thing about porphyries that's really good to know in BC and the Yukon is that we have a suite of younger ones too. So they kind of came in 50, 30 million years ago. And that includes Huckleberry okay. and Casino in the Yukon. These are much, much younger. So they're not part of the whole Cornelia sort of Stikine story. It's something that came up later, mm. um, kind of around the same time that a lot of the deposits in the Southwest states and all this stuff kind of went through as well. Okay. Yeah. So that's called like the Laramide sort of Plutonism, whatever. Nice. I like that. It's like a country Western name. I know, right? <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Craig Cart was like, that name, that word is so outdated, Laramide. <laughs> so it was so funny. I was <laughs> laughing at that. So, and that happened like during the Laramide orogeny, which was basically the last gasp of mountain building before our offshore subduction zone switched to strikes of faulting. So can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. um, so when someone says orogenic gold deposit, does that just mean it's associated with mountain building, the deposit? Yeah. So, yeah. That, so it could really be. Origin being gold. So it could be. Or, origin being mountain. What am I talking about? So these, <laughs> so these deposits don't necessarily have to have a lot in common. They just have to be associated with mountain building events. Porphyries? Oh, well, any deposit that someone calls orogenic, say, because yeah. we hear like orogenic gold all the time. Totally. Right? It's associated yeah. with mountain building. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's a good definition. It's good to know. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. sorry. I didn't even know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, orogenic. actually, I had somebody it's ask. It's a fancy word for mountain building. Yeah. I had someone ask me that recently. They're like, people keep bringing this up now because it seems to be a hot 
like way to describe gold deposits that I you're not too sure. I think it's just super technical. It's like yeah. hip to say it. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Mountain building gold deposits now orogenic. But it's good to know. Yeah, yeah. So now that you find <laughs> that, that's good to know. Yeah. So the other amazing story I stumbled upon while doing this geology article for BC Yukon was Golden Yukon. Okay. Okay. This is cool. So we know that there are two hot spots for gold in the Yukon. We have the 20 million ounce Klondike gold fields where the bedrock source has never really been found. Mm-hmm. And then you have the six million ounce, is it six million coffee deposit? Six or nine, uh, maybe six? six? Okay, yeah. cool. So six million ounce coffee gold deposits. So we know that age dating has proven that these two gold deposits or occurrences, whatever, are completely unrelated, all right? To start, gold was driven up into the crust in the Klondike region about 150 million years ago. Now, if you've been paying attention, then you know that 150 million years ago is when Stikini and Cornelia slammed into the margin of North America. Yep. So what happens when that happens? You get uplift and you get mountain building, orogenic gold. Yep. So when that arc came in, it thrusted up all the oceanic and rocks and sediments sitting in between, right? It created these huge mountains, not to mention massive through-growing structures. Otherwise, it created the perfect environment for orogenic gold deposits, right? Mountain-built gold deposits. There you go. (laughs) So this belt of rocks isn't like limited to the Yukon alone. In the Yukon, that package of rocks is called the Yukon Tanana Terrain. You probably heard of it. Sometimes it's YTT, not to be confused with Toronto Pearson. No, no, we're not talking airports. No, (laughs) but um, other equivalents to the Yukon Tanana would be the Kootenai Terrain in BC. Oh, no way. Yes. Now, I hope you're paying attention because what I'm about to say might blow your mind. Oh, good. I blew mine. Oh, good. I'm going to ask you, what other major historical placer gold camp do we have in BC? Uh, Barkerville. Barkerville. Yeah. What package of rocks does the gold at Barkerville sit in? Just take a guess. Uh, Kootenays? That's right, the Kootenay terrain. It's hosted in the Kootenay terrain. When was the gold in Barkerville? Just have a random guess. When do you think the gold in Barkerville came in? 30 to 50 million years ago. No. 150. 150 okay, there was two numbers ago. you gave me. 30 <laughs> yes. and 50 or 150. It. So I, I, I So it. so think about it. We have between the Barkerville and the Klondike gold fields broad scale similarities between the two regions. Now it gets even crazier. In the Yukon's white gold district, which hosts the only known load gold deposit equivalent to what the gold in the gold fields. Mm-hmm. Gold, 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 gold. Stay with me here. We know that the geology there includes all these thrusted slivers of oceanic rocks called the slide mountain terrain. So you also see these ultramafic rocks in the Klondike area too. If you've ever gone walking around, you might see them. Now, going over to the Barkerville camp, what do you see there? But exactly the same. Wow. You have thrusted in packages of slide mountain terrain. Yeah. And, uh, and it's hmm. kind of all over the place. So here we have two districts, the Klondike and Barkerville, each occurring within a similar package of rocks, each in a similar geological setting, each forming kind of roughly around the same age. Mm-hmm. The only difference is 6 million ounces of gold is washed into the creeks at Barkerville versus the 20 million ounces of gold washed into the Klondike. Huh. Yeah. A, that would be a cool chart. I was just That'd thinking. That would be cool. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, cool story. So... Yeah. Um, have a dig around uh, the Kootenai terrain. Yeah, hey. Basically along that margin. Yeah, and maybe and it didn't wash out. 
Yeah. Well, exactly. Well, yeah. the Klondike washed out because it was backed up by a glacier and mm -hmm. created this bathtub. Yeah. And that, and then erosion underneath that glacier basically pulled a plug like a bathtub, and it just swirled around and totally just emptied itself. And all the soft micas in the Klondike schist was washed out, oh, leaving okay. the gold behind. So it was literally scoured out mm -hmm. in a really catastrophic break in this glacier. Now, let's finish up with coffee, all right? So gold was driven into coffee at about 100 million years ago. Like the Klondike, it's, it's also hosted in the Yukon-Tanana terrain, just in different rock types. Um, that event around 100 million years ago correlates with another collision, but this time it was a volcanic terrain known as Rangelia colliding into Stikinia. They didn't make the best names, these jokes. Rang Rangelia. I know, it just sounds <laughs> like just wrangle them up and herd them in. Mm. Um, the pun is amazing. So um, the thing is, when Rangelia, this, this this oceanic terrain, collided into Stikinia, it was the collision was huge. Um, I think it was even more intense than the first one. It totally destroyed Stikinia and whatever Yukon Tanana terrain was in its way. Like that's why um, all the deposits in Northwest BC are so structurally complex because they have been messed up by this head-on collision of Rangelia. Uh, and, but it's also why we see gold in coffee, yeah. all right? So coffee being another orogenic gold system. And I am going to make a gamble and say that you're probably only likely to find a coffee-like gold deposit on the western margin of the Yukon Tanana terrain and not the east side. Okay. Because that's the side that got basically copped all the strain and all the mountain, everything. Yeah. It just copped it just like Stikinia did and Cornelia didn't feel pretty much anything. Um, you probably won't also find co coffee-like deposits in the Kootenay rocks either, like on the eastern side. You're probably only going to find them in the western margin where all the deformation was focused. Okay. So here's another like interesting idea. We had a massive orogenic event 100 million years ago that was focused along the western margin of Sikinia and Yukon Tanana. Now, I don't know anything about Alaska, not yet, so I'm <laughs> going to leave that out, but I'm super interested. You have no idea. Um, but we have one orogenic gold deposit that accounts for that event, right? And that's coffee. Yeah. But my point is here is that there's probably a lot more orogenic gold deposits along the western margin of Sikinia um, than we actually know. Or maybe we just assume they're related to porphyries. Oh, I don't yeah. know, yeah. but it's something to think about and to start looking on that little map that I have and published in the paper that mm -hmm. you can get online through the government websites and everything like that. And you can just kind of look at the terrains and always question yourself, is that actually terrain has been accurately identified by government geologists? Has there proper mapping done in that area? That's a fair question. Maybe you can look and see if what the recent geological map was, right? And then mm -hmm. say, oh, well, they might have got that terrain wrong because no one has looked at it in 50 years. Oh. So anyway, these are all super interesting ideas that are blossoming mm -hmm. out of doing these geology articles on the geology and metal districts of the different terrains in Canada. And it's cool because it falls back into the Archean and where where like those deposits might be lying because they have orogenic gold, they have porphyries, they have things yeah. that are similar too. It's just what we see here today is modern, relatively modern analogs to potentially older deposit types. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds like a good start to a PhD thesis you got going on there. Well, it was funny. I wrote I wrote um, Craig Hart from MDRU. I said, Craig, 
what's the differences between the Kootenai terrain and Yukon Tanada? And he writes me back, he says, Leslie, that sounds like an excellent paper I would love to read. Yeah. <laughs> the, t- exactly. the title yeah. of an excellent paper I'd like to read. Yeah. But as far as you know, he doesn't know any differences. Oh, so it's out there. Yeah, you could yeah. you could find out something new. Yeah. yeah. So Anyways. everybody, start staking. <laughs> and Leslie begins it. No, yeah. no, just no. Start start staking knowledge and yeah. and yeah. getting this bigger picture because the big picture opens up doors in your brain and it's really cool. Sometimes it's a labyrinth. Sometimes I get lost. That's but okay though. Other times you get come out and you're like, ooh, that, that was, was an interesting ride. Yeah, there you go, there you go. So yeah. thanks for listening in to this week's Geology Corner. Welcome back to studio following another awesome geological tour with Leslie Stokes. And I happen to have a great segue, uh, courtesy of Geoscience BC, who just informed me that they will be releasing results from their Search 2 project on Tuesday, January 24th, between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. at the Pan Pacific Hotel Ocean View Suite 7 here in Vancouver. Um, And now anyone who's not aware, the Search project is a $2.4 million multi-year minerals program focused on BC's West Central region. Now, the first phase kicked off in August 2015, but this second phase was just completed this past summer and represents the largest airborne geophysical survey conducted in Canada in 2016. Uh, So this is going to be really interesting. They were looking for potential for new copper, silver, and molly deposits uh, in that area of BC. Um, So the results will be released uh, during the aforementioned time. Um, And Minister of Energy and Mines, Bill Bennett, will be in attendance. Uh, So I recommend, if you're interested, to really uh, surf by there and maybe check out uh, what Geoscience BC was able to do with the search program this year. It's always interesting to see uh, the annual results from them. Um, Maybe we'll uh, send Leslie by and get her thoughts on uh, where those results may lead. Um, And now, without further uh, delay, let's crack in with Paul West Sells, chair of the YMA. and we'll have just a, uh, a quick chat on uh, on, on some broad issues, uh, the YMA and their mandate and uh, how they've worked as a coalition. But we'll also talk a little bit about changes in the Yukon, namely uh, the entry of majors like Goldcorp and Agnico uh, and the recent liberal election victory in the territory and what the new regime uh, might be thinking in terms of mineral strategy. Uh, so let's let Paul kick it off and uh, I will be back on the flip side just to say goodbye. Yeah, so I mean the Yukon Mining Alliance has been around for um, well, over five years at, at least here. And um, really, it was started as a way for a number of Yukon junior mining companies to um, essentially market together, uh, leverage some government funding, and uh, sell the message of the Yukon. I mean, we were, we were and continue to be very excited about the Yukon and, and the enormous potential of the Yukon. And uh, it's worked very, very well. Uh, you know, the, the members, um, you know, ourselves at Western Copper and Gold, uh, Victoria Gold, um, Alexco Resources, um, uh, ATAC uh, were sort of the key ones uh, that sort of started. But now it's expanded a fair bit. And, you know, Gold Corp is, has uh, joined in to help us out. Uh, we've got Wellgreen Platinum. Um, anyhow, I'm sure I'm missing some, but uh, it, it's it's a, a fairly good list of the, the sort of the key juniors that are up in the Yukon. Um, and I think we've done a good job. Uh, if you look at what we've been able to do, you go back three years ago and, and uh, it was the bottom of the market. We were still able to do some marketing and, and still uh, the companies were still able to stay afloat and 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 raise a little bit of money i think all through that downturn we didn't have uh any major bankruptcies of of companies in the yukon which is impressive over because that can't be said of other jurisdictions 
And then you sort of flash forward, and particularly last year, I mean, 2016, you had Gold Corp make three separate investments. I mean, they bought Kamenak, they they made an investment in Independence Gold, um, I guess those two, and then you had Nico Eagle come in and, and work with Sean Ryan and do an investment there as well. So I think that that, you know, th- those are sort of what happens when you present, a, you know, a strong message of the importance of the Yukon. You have continual good discoveries and good news coming out of the Yukon. It, it creates, uh, you know, demands the attention of the major mining companies. And this is the year when they finally came in and made some big investments. And I mean, that's interesting. And, and um, we caught the white gold vehicle that, that Agnico invested in. Um, maybe as someone uh, who's been obviously Western Copper and Gold, your company has been doing business in the Yukon for quite a long time. And there hasn't as you mentioned, been a major presence there. Um, so maybe, like, how does that change as a junior when you see these big major companies coming into the jurisdiction? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, what what it does for for um, mining companies is it, it legitimizes, I think, the jurisdiction. Um, you know, one of the challenges and one of the key messages that we brought as the Yukon Mining Alliance is, look, the Yukon is... This isn't the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, we're well located in terms of access, uh, in terms of, you know, there's ports in Skagway, which are, are close uh, to the Yukon. There's a well-developed road network. There's a, you know, permitting is, is uh, you know, well thought out and mines get permitted and built. And, you know, we can say that. Uh, and, and we know that because, you know, we, we live and work up there. But when you start to see these large mining companies come in, they've come in, they've done their diligence on the region and come to the same conclusions. And so it's a, it's a, a mark of confidence in the region and, and in the territory. And one other sort of major change or shift um, in the territory over the past year has always been an election. Um, and there's a new incoming government. And maybe um, anecdotally, I know it's early. Uh, what's your experience been with Sandy Silver and the new uh, Liberal government? Uh, really good. Um, you know, the the government came in uh, shortly before there was, you know, you talked about conference season. Well, there's a big conference up in the Yukon called the Yukon Geoscience Forum that was held in November. Uh, the new premier spoke at that. He spoke at the gala reception, um, you know, said that, you know, he was from Dawson. He grew up with mining. He understood mining and, and thought it to be a key cornerstone for the territory. Um, you know, I've met... Uh, as part of the, as the chair of YMA, I've met with the, the new minister of economic development, who also is the minister of energy mines and resources. So this is the first time that economic development and energy mines resources has been under the same minister. That's a real positive. Um, I got to tell you, he was just filled with great ideas and and real passion um, about what what we could do and what can be done. And so I think it's going to be a great government to work with. And welcome back again to the Northern Miner Studio. Uh, so yeah, that's great. I'm actually working on the uh, the Yukon uh, government reps right now to actually see if I can get an, uh, an exclusive uh, with new Premier Sandy Silver, and we'll see if we can uh, maybe get him uh, on the line or uh, in person at the show uh, to give us a little bit of his own insight on where he sees uh, mineral development in the territory going. Um, but yeah, uh, I better uh, I better hot foot it down to the conference. Uh, can't wait to get down there, say hi to everybody, and uh, see some familiar faces again. Um, so Leslie and myself will be on the floor. Leslie's down there already, so you might uh, you might see her if you're listening to this uh, list on your mobile. Um, but as always, please do uh, do follow us on Twitter, like us on YouTube, and rate us on iTunes because that helps us out a ton. But uh, this has been Matthew Keeble reporting with the Northern Miner Podcast, and I will see you at Roundup. <laughs>